Dr. George Rutherford is the director of the Institute for Global Health and the head of the Division of Prevention Medicine and Public Health at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. He has been very involved in California's COVID-19 response and has published a number of articles on the topic. Today, he will discuss the latest insights about COVID-19 transmission. Let's listen in. So I thought I might just say a couple of words about the stuff I deal with every day, um, kind of what's new, what's not. Um, so I think the well, there's a lot that's been learned recently about transmission and, and problems and you know, kind of potential for transmission. And with Labor Day coming up, I'm asked interminably about is it okay to, if we're everybody if everybody's outside is it okay? To which I reply, you know, is it okay? You know, can we had that big barbecue with 800 people, and the answer is no. Okay, this is a there, there are two things going on here. One is the probability of being exposed of someone walking into your backyard who's actively infectious, okay, and, and shedding virus. The more people, the more likely that is. Where you are, you saw where the red spots were still on the map, the more likely it is. And then once you get there, the question is, is what's gonna, um, is how likely is there going to be transmission, okay? So it's two things. One is how likely you are to come into contact with someone who's uh, infectious. And the second thing is how likely is that person to transmit to you? The latter is a function of wearing masks and social distancing, okay? so. As long as you go to your backyard barbecue and don't take your mask off, which I can't imagine it's going to be very comfortable, uh, you should be okay. But the you know the point here is is that you want small groups, if at all, you want people to ma- maintain social distance. You want people to wear as masks as much as possible. Um, and you know just because you're at the beach or wherever doesn't grant you some writ of immunity. If someone's a foot and a half away from you and coughing and sneezing, you know. That's not good. So that's one whole thing I deal with. The second whole thing I deal with is the whole question of schools. Um, and this is a very uh, contentious issue. Uh, you have seen uh, a number of large American universities that have had to send everybody home. Everyone from the University of North Carolina to Notre Dame to here in California, even with only 10% on campus, Chico State had to send everybody home. Uh, so it's not going uh, well. Uh, and if middle school, as middle schools and high schools start to come back on, and we've seen some crashing and burning in Georgia already, um, we're gonna, uh, that's gonna be a big potential for, for transmission. The transmission in children is really from about um, age 10 up, under 10, the children are less likely to get infected. They're less likely to infect other people, and they're much less likely to have have symptoms. So that's good. But as you, you your get out of jail free card for elementary schools goes away as the kids go into middle and high school. And as I say, it's sort of hard to imagine the fate of the country resting in the hands of 12 to 22 year olds, but that's what's, that's what's going on. And that's where the third wave of the epidemic um, is going to be if it, if it hits. So that's the, you know, those are the big things I've been dealing with. A million questions about immunity, about a reinfection, of which we had kind of the first four well-documented cases last week, a million questions about aerosol transmission. Um, I've gotten, I found myself backed into the, backed into a interesting consulting role uh, with some of my colleagues for the San Francisco Opera, 
Um, and how do you get the opera going again with singing and dancing and wind instruments and, you know, packed crowd of people whose median age is 75. You know, you can imagine sort of a more problematic venue and problematic activity I'd, I'd sort of throw in with you. So that's uh, that's what I've been doing. And I'd be, I think it might be easier if you guys, uh, you know, wanted to wind me up and point me in a direction and I can talk about uh, various and sundry uh, issues. Uh, I will say that this is not going to magically go away. Forget everything you hear about herd immunity. It's nonsense, nonsense. Okay. San Quentin State Prison had to go to 70% of the inmates infected before it started to die out. Okay. So that's where herd immunity lies, somewhere around the 60s, maybe 70%, something like that. For us to go from where we are now as a nation, where we're probably about somewhere between five and 10% infected, the 70%, we'd have to have 10 times as many cases, which means we'll have 10 times as many deaths. So we'll be up pushing 2 million deaths to get to herd immunity. And oh, by the way, herd immunity is only going to last based on what we know now for about four or five months. So whatever you hear about herd immunity, discard it, right? This is all, this all has to await a vaccine, unfortunately. So um, with that, ha well, on that happy note, let me turn, let me listen to questions. All right. I, I'll start, I'll kick it off with one question for you, um, which is very relevant to what you were just saying. Looking on that map, I see that New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, which was a, an original hotspot, and now Florida, they're, they're um, calmed down uh, so much that they're in that, you know, light yellow phase. Is it better preparation? Is it lockdowns? Obviously not herd immunity. What, what causes them to go from being that real center of a surge to, you know, this, this light yellow, really manageable phase? Well, manageable is not yellow. But, um, I, you know, I, it's, it's people are wearing masks and people take it seriously. I mean, I think, um, I think they've, I think people in New York always took it seriously because it was, you know, it was like, this was sort of Italy, Spain level of disaster medicine going on. We actually, UCSF actually sent a whole ICU team, a big ICU team to uh, New York city, loaned them to Columbia for about a month because uh, we had sort of flattened out our, our surge and we're on the other side of it. And we, we sent uh, one team to New York to help. We also sent another team to the Navajo Nation to help because they had a huge surge and the Indian Health Service couldn't keep up with it. So, you know, that's the kind of resources you need to send in those in those situations. I think people in New York are, have, been, have been wearing masks and have been taking this seriously. Um, I think it's, uh, I think in certain parts of Florida, like in the Miami area, um, I think people have also been wearing masks and taking it much more seriously than they have in the past. Um, and I, th I think we're just sort of seeing the, the benefits of people uh, avoiding getting infected. And it's, you know, it's avoiding getting infected is, is relatively straightforward. You wear a mask when you walk out of your house and you, um, and you try and maintain distance uh, with other people and you don't go into big crowd events. You know, it's, I wish it were different. You know, I'd love to be going to college football games this week, coming weekend, but it's not happening. 
And, you know, I think you just have to kind of say, okay, 20, 2020 was a mess. 2021 is going to be a transitional year. Hopefully everything will be back to normal in 2022, but that's totally vaccine dependent. Okay. Um, so we have a, a list of people here. We're a queue of questions. Uh, the first up is Jim Bernstein. Jim, are you unmuted? I'm unmuted. Yes. Thank you. Um, Dr. Rutherford, I have a question for you and I'm unable to get additional information. I'd wondered if you'd heard about this and whether you could comment on it. There's a story at the University of Arizona where the uh, maintenance team and some yeah. engineering students figured yeah. out a way to test the wastewater yeah. yep. to determine um, incidences of infection. And yet I can't find um, a lot of data about this story. It seems very interesting and I thought it was very promising, but I don't know if it's real and I don't know if it's meaningful. Do, do you know about this and can you comment on it? Absolutely. This is like one of my favorite projects. Um, we do, as there's a, uh, uh, I've dealt with this. Um, so there's a woman who's a uh, professor of environmental microbiology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who sort of put this whole thing together. So the part that you need to know is that when you have a, a SARS-CoV-2 infection, right? What you're testing with the with the the swab test that we put in your nose and throat and stuff, we're trying to recover RNA, okay? And then we amplify the RNA in order to find it. These are RNA viruses; they don't have DNA. Um, you also, with it in the back, swallow it, so it goes through your GI tract and it gets excreted with stool, okay? So you can test effluvia, you know, with the wastewater coming out of facilities um, and amplify it to see if there's a case there. Um, we actually tried to do this. You'll love this story. We tried to do it at the Federal Correctional Institute in Lompoc in Santa Barbara County. Um, if you think doing prisoner research is complicated, try doing federal prisoner research. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, I think it's still six months away from the approvals. Uh, but meanwhile, this has kind of gone in as into a relatively normal practice, um, especially on campuses where they have a lot of uh, uh, laboratory capacity. This, uh, these aren't clinical specimens, so you don't have to you don't have to have all those levels of approval. Um, you can just put them in any re old regular microbiology lab, and they can and they can test them. And it's, so it's really cool. It's a great idea. And what you say is this building has a problem. And then you can go in and test everybody and figure out what the story is. So it's a great kind of uh, early warning sign. That was not the first question I expected to be asked, but uh, but it's an absolutely true story about Lompoc and the, the Federal Correctional Institute, way up, way up in the north, north side of Santa Barbara County. All right, thank you for that. Um, uh, Bill Kunkler is up next. Uh, good afternoon, doctor. Hi. Um, so herd immunity, you, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier in this conversation, and it would seem to me it's not binary that like New York and even I, I live in Chicago, that because there have been such a, you know, a significant number of cases, it would seem like there's partial immunity. You know, I see people wearing masks, washing, you know, people are washing their hands, taking precautions, but my, it just sort of a sense that, you know, the, the population is somewhat immunized at this point, you know, the, and, and obviously I, you know, you hear the 60 to 70% as being, um, you know, the, 
the level when people could really feel comfortable and, you know, I'm getting the impression almost stop wearing masks. Am, am I reading the situation properly? Uh, I'd say you're, you know, it's not all wrong. I give you partial credit, right? This was like, you know, I get to great papers. You get partial credit on this one. People who get it are, are most people who get the infection are immune for some period of time. What that period of time is, we don't know. As I, so let me just talk about this kind of transient immunity. So there are two really interesting things that um, happened in the last two weeks. The first, and, and so I'm sorry, I need to talk a little bit more about biology. So the reason we call this is a coronavirus, so it's a little round RNA virus, and it has spikes that stick off of it. So in cross-section, it looks like a, like a crown. Okay. So the I assume I, I grew up in Coronado, so I assume everybody knows that that Corona means crown. But you know that's just maybe that's my Southern California upbringing. Um, the, the the spikes on that are called are called obviously spike proteins, and at the tip of those, there's a little piece of uh, protein that's the key that fits into a lock and in uh, that's a receptor called the ACE2 uh, receptor that's in the uh, respiratory epithelium. When you make antibodies, you can make antibodies to any part of the virus, okay? When your body reacts to it, it'll, it'll make antibodies to whatever piece it sees first. If you happen to make it against that little piece of, of spike, the end of the spike protein, which is called the receptor binding domain, then you have something called neutralizing antibody. And neutralizing antibody means it, it keeps the virus from invading cells and replicating. So that's good. So uh, a couple of weeks, maybe so three or four weeks ago, big U.S. commercial fishing, fishing boat uh, in Seattle, 122 crew members. Um, they basically, everybody but a couple of guys got screened before they went out to sea. Um, they uh, went out, um, big outbreak on the ship, you know, 90% people infected, came back, had to come back. And they tested the blood they'd drawn before they departed. Three people had neutralizing antibody from prior infection, and um, none of them got sick. Of the other 117 that didn't have it, something like 109 of them got sick. So, and this is obviously when you do the statistics, it's a it's a big significant thing. So that's a real that's that sort of proof from a, a naturally occurring experiment that neutralizing antibody or something that accompanies neutralizing antibody, which we don't know yet, uh, can actually be protective. So that's one good thing. So neutralizing antibodies work. The second thing is, is that probably about uh, you know, sort of 70% of people have neutralizing antibody, but most of them have it at fairly low levels. Um, and it appears that whatever antibody response you have starts to wane after a fairly, you know, after the period of a few months. And that's true of the uh, coronaviruses that cause colds, the alpha coronaviruses. Last week there, or the week before and last week, there were four cases of reinfection, true cases of reinfection that were described, one from Hong Kong, one from Belgium, one from the Netherlands, and one from Reno, Nevada. And in each of these, they actually had the virus um, from the from the prior infection and the virus from the new infection, and they know they're different viruses. So this isn't just prolonged carriage, which happens all the time. Um, 
So there are people who got infected and then got reinfected. Okay. So to so to, to kind of contextualize what you're seeing in Chicago is that people who are infected, who were infected and have recovered, have some period of time that they're where they're going to be relatively immune, most of them. However, it appears now that as that immunity wanes, if they're if they're coming into contact with somebody who's uh, ex, who's excreting virus, who's shedding virus, that they can become reinfected. So this kind of honeymoon you see around, I think around New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Chicago, Detroit, those are places where there were big outbreaks in in um, in March and I guess maybe April in, in Chicago. I'm not really I don't really remember exactly. And you may be seeing some transient immunity from that, but it's not going to be enough to stop anything. And it's just going to, you know, it's just going to come back in Spain in France and in uh, Germany right now, all of which had big epidemics and all of which they completely really almost totally went away. They're now just, they're now back up to just as many cases as they were having before. So they had a true second wave. Um, so that's the, uh, you know, that's the downside. So, you know, my guess that my advice is enjoy it while you can, uh, but be careful. Thank you. Sure. Okay, next up in the queue is Howard Sherman. Howard, are you unmuted? I am. Thank you. So all the talk about uh, vaccination and not much talk about therapeutics. Yeah. All of us who've taken Z-Pax and erythromycin and Cipro, have taken it for things that there's no vaccine for. Why is there no talk about therapeutics or very little? Uh, there is talk, a lot of talk about therapeutics in my world. Um, we have a we have an okay drug called remdesivir made by Gilead, uh, which is given to people when they get admitted to the hospital. Basically, um, there are trials going on of several other antiviral drugs. A antiviral drugs are more complicated than than antibacterial drugs. Um, there are trials of several other antiviral drugs that are going on, including prophylactic trials. So that, you know, for instance, if you're in a nursing home and um, you're worried that you might be, and, you know, there's a, an outbreak going on, you could put everybody in the nursing home on prophylactic, uh, prophylactic doses of, of an antiviral drug, prevent them from getting infected. Just like when you travel overseas, like to Africa or something, you go on malaria prophylaxis. It's the same idea. Um, we ought to use this for HIV now. It's called pre-exposure pre prophylaxis or, or PrEP. Um, so we're working on that. Um, but the, you know, I mean, that's a relatively, you know, if we had a cheap drug like, you know, penicillin that anybody could take and you could buy over the counter, a lot of this stuff would go away. There's no two ways about that. But what we have is remdesivir, a fairly, you know, expensive, we're looking at other antiviral drugs, which are equally expensive and difficult to give. We have old standbys for when people start to crash in the ICUs, like dexamethasone, um, which are just, just basically big time steroids. And the other thing that we've done is um, that's been shown in trials, and this is really not where you want to be, is that to keep people off of ventilators, uh, you can put oxygen, you give them oxygen externally, but put them on their stomachs. And that's called prone positioning. Um, and that the work of breathing is a lot easier if you're lying on your stomach, believe it or not. And um, so you can, people can skirt by and not have to go onto ventilators. But that's, you know, 
that's way, way down the line of being really sick. Um, and you'd like to avoid that. I think probably the best we're going to hope for is a drug that you could give people kind of like, I don't know if any of you have ever taken um, like oseltamivir, Tamiflu for flu, for influenza, where you can take it both uh, at, at diagnosis and you don't have to be in the hospital. It's an outpatient drug as well. And you can also give it prophylactically like in nursing homes and stuff. I think that's the best we're going to hope for. Um, but it's not going to, it's not a big, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to um, get that much coverage with those drugs. They're going to have a lot of side effects too. Okay. Thank you. Um, the next step is Stamen Ogilvy. You unmuted. Thank you, Martha. And uh, Dr. Rutherford, most of us on this call are lay persons, uh, but we read a great deal and we get ourselves in trouble by trying to extrapolate from the facts that we read. Particularly, it seems, if we read CDC uh, material, and uh, there was a flurry over the past several days uh, when a footnote was discovered uh, in CDC reports that have been there for several months saying that uh, only 6% of the people who uh, have gotten this have gotten it as a sole problem. That is, they've had something else along with it. Mm -hmm. My question is this. Uh, it's one thing to say you didn't have anything, you got it, and it killed you. It's mm -hmm. another to say you didn't have anything until you got it, and then these coexisting circumstances at time of death develop mm -hmm. like pneumonia. So the question is, what does that 6% really mean? Uh, and I don't know where they got it. First of all, I don't know where they got it from. I've heard this story but I don't know where they got it from. What I can tell you is that the pre-existing conditions that they're taught that, that increase your risk of, of, of uh, severe outcomes, meaning bad hospitalizations, prolonged hospital course, ICU admission, mortality probably exist in, well, by definition, they exist in a hundred percent of the American population over 60. And uh, in the population under 60, they probably exist for if you're between 50 and 60, they probably exist in about 60%, and between 40 and 50, probably in 40%. Uh, it's, you know, it's hypertension, it's less than perfect lean body mass, um, it's uh, any form of uh, heart disease, it's smoking, it's uh, prior lung disease. So it's a lot of stuff, um, asthma. Uh, it's a lot of very common conditions. Um, and so they're, they're really ubiquitous in the population. Now, does the virus, is the virus worse in people who have those? Absolutely, it's worse. Um, uh, and, but it's, it's, it's not like, I, th I think it gets sort of misconstrued um, that, you know, this really, you know, if you only didn't have any of these conditions, which probably, as I said, existed by definition on 100% of Americans over 60, um, you know, you wouldn't, you're not going to, you don't have anything to worry about. And that, in fact, isn't really true. Um, there are, for mortality, maybe, because they're healthier and we can save them. But hospital, there are a lot of hospitalizations, and um, there's a lot of even ICU admits. So it, it's an interesting statistic, but, you know, if you're going to, don't, don't take it to the bank. That's my advice. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Carrie Heslin, if you can unmute yourself. 
Hi, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rutherford. Two questions I had. First was, um, what's your understanding of the status of a vaccine? Mm -hmm. And second, I've been reading that, although we're getting a lot of more positive test results, that the virus has weakened and that the death rate is not as high as it initially was. Is there any truth to that? Ooh. Okay, well, let me talk about the, don't, don't let me forget the second one. Um, so there are two vaccines that are available, right, that are being used right now, uh, but you have to either join the People's Liberation Army or be in Russia to get them. Um, so you might want to think twice about either of those conditions. Um, there are a number of vaccines, something like 128 vaccine candidates that are being evaluated uh, worldwide. Um, I can't remember, it's five or six that the U.S. government has actually heavily invested in. Um, there are phase three trials going on for a couple of vaccine uh, products right now and a couple more phase, phase three is the sort of the ultimate uh, 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 trial. Uh, these are large trials that involve thousands of patients, sorry, thousands of participants uh, before they get FDA, um, before it gets FDA approval. So there are two that have already started and there are another couple that are gonna come online this fall. And, you know, I think we're gonna have, I mean, I, you know, I don't have any primary knowledge of this, but I listen to everything Dr. Fauci says is gospel truth. Uh, and those guys at NIH seem really pretty confident that something's going to come out by the end of the year, which would be great. The question is, is how much is there going to be and who's going to get it? Right. So you can imagine how these conversations go. Right. So the, so the, you know, so there's a, you know, everybody sits around and, you know, from the federal government says, well, all the Federal Bureau of Prisons guards have to get it first. And the Navy says, the Navy actually has a legitimate claim on this because they've had big outbreaks on ships. You know, all the sailors have to get it first. And then somebody says, oh, all of these people have to get it first. And all these people have to get it first. And then all the healthcare workers have to get it first. And then, you know, like, okay, it's all gone now, right? Now here we have in California, I can tell you that this is a disease, if not almost exclusively, mostly of, of Latino population. And if you wanna make this disease go away, that's who you should be vaccinating first. Not first responders, not, you know, not nursing home patients, not, um, you know, not the prison guards. You know, you know, if you wanna to go to where the disease is and try and prevent disease, that's where you go. So you can imagine how contentious these conversations are. Um, because even though there's been a parallel manufacturing process set up that they just have to drop the candidate vaccine. And at the end, um, it's going to take, um, you know, we're not going to have, a, so the, the two doses, the two vaccines right in trials now, both require two doses. So if you produce a hundred million uh, vaccines, that means we have enough for 50 million people, right? So who gets it first? And, you know, does the elderly get it? You know, you can imagine how these conversations go. So that's where we are with vaccines. So I, I have my fingers crossed. And I think it's. Uh, think it's. Uh, I think things are looking good. Is the virus getting less? Uh, less. Um, I, I'm sorry. The only word I can think of is pathogenic. But that's, I, I promised myself not to use medical words. Is it getting more virulent or less virulent? Uh, the answer is it's exactly the same. Uh, the virulence is, is still the same. We see the. Um, you know, people make it to the hospital. We see the same proportion going in the ICUs. We have better ICU outcomes than we have in the past. Um, at UCSF now, I can tell you that about, this is true of Stanford as well, uh, 
if you go in the ICU, you have about a 90% chance of going out alive. So that's in, in to start with, it was something more like 40%. So that's a big, that's a big improvement. And that's drugs, therapeutics, you know, that's dint of effort. However, having said that, if you look at this newer wave of, inf of infection that started um, in, in June, is we really don't see the num same numbers of deaths, okay? And there are a bunch of different explanations that have been floated around for that. One of the, um, one of the mo uh, more interesting ones, and this is one of our, our lines of research in, with some of the groups at UCSF, is that by virtue of wearing masks, people who are getting infected are getting inf infected with fewer viral particles. So they're getting infected with lower doses of the virus. Uh, and we know from animal studies with influenza, for instance, that there's a dose response. So the more virus you get, the more likely you are to develop severe side effects. Um, so for those of you who like to read the New England Journal of Medicine, we have a editorial, a commentary coming out trying to explain this theory and I think next week. Um, but it's a, I think that's an interesting thing. The other thing is that younger people don't die. So if you use death as a, as a, as a marker of kind of crude marker of severity, there are, there are, there have been fewer deaths proportionately, but you know, there, the number of hospitalizations seems to be about the same as it was in the, in the first wave. So, you know, I think it's a lot of that has to do with better care as well. So there's not a, I don't think there's anything to suggest that the virus is less virulent. There's some uh, uh, viral, uh, there's some data looking at different strains of viruses and there's some suggestion that it's actually more virulent, that it uh, attaches and replicates better uh, with one of the newer strains. Um, so, so I think what we're seeing is younger people, maybe smaller inocula, um, kind of a mechanical explanations like that. Okay, thank you. Um, Steve Finkelman is next up, if you can unmute yourself. Thank you. I wanted to ask a question about the different tests. You can talk about the tests that are out there. Of course, you know the PCR, which is called the quote unquote gold standard, but when it takes a week or five days to get back, it's one thing versus other tests that maybe a few points less, you know, reliable, but they you get them back in a day or two. So I'd just like to hear your comments. We're hearing more about the antigen tests that are coming out. Also. Sure. So there are kind of roughly speaking, there are three types of tests that are available uh, for COVID. Um, and we're not talking about environmental samples out of the college sewer system uh, here, but um, there are molecular tests where you're actually trying to detect RNA. Those are the nasal swabs, the oral swabs. That's where you can spit into a cup that which like the baseball players are doing. Um, there are antigen tests where you're actually looking for a specific protein part of the virus as opposed to the RNA of the virus. Uh, and those have a lot of promise. Um, and then there are antibody tests. Antibody tests are, look at the, your reaction to prior infection. And so they're wonderful tools for people like me who want to see where the virus has gone and um, look at, you know, like the fishing boat, you know, look at questions of immunity and things like that. Uh, they're not particularly useful diagnostically. Um, one thing, um, so it really kind of comes down to molecular methods, meaning piece, polymerase chain reaction, PCR, and the kind of related things, and, um, and antigen testing. Uh, PCRs are, um, as you say, are, are gold standard. They take a while. They're expensive. 
they're somewhat unpleasant, especially if you had a nasopharyngeal where they, you know, go kind of back to here, right? Unpleasant. Um, and it's, but now we're doing sort of more nasal swabs. And I have a colleague at Stanford who said she did one on a newborn baby and didn't wake him up. Uh, so, you know, so that's a pretty good test. I, I kind of like that as a test. Um, I, so I, I'm, I've actually, whatever you do, you need high, it's, it's no good to have these things sitting around forever, right? That's, a, that's been a real mess. You need to have uh, rapid, um, you need to have kind of uh, rapid throughput. Um, you need to be able to get the test back quickly and they need to be accurate. Okay, so the one of the nice things about the antigen tests is that when you're testing people serially over time, multiple times over, over a period of time, like the NBA, they're not using antigen testing, but if you're doing like the NBA players or kids going into, I see you have a Texas backdrop going to the, going into some dorm at uh, Austin, all the football players have to get there for the game on Saturday. Oh, it's a week from Saturday. Um, you know, you, those are going to be people who are going to be tested all the time. And so the antigen test works well in those situations. And the reason is, is what we're trying to find is a period of time. So you know, the PCR test will say, okay, we can detect it um, three days after you get infected, right? So it's two days before you develop, five days infection to symptom onset. Between days uh, zero and two, none of these tests are positive. Starting at day three, the PCR test and the antigen test turn positive, okay? But the PCR test will remain positive for, you know, weeks, like, um, you know, four weeks. Plus, if it gets into the GI tract and gets excreted, it'll be positive for seven weeks. And that's just old RNA. Those aren't live viruses that are replicating. That's just old pieces of RNA that are lying around. So the PCR is great for that kind of, you know, looking at that long-term, you know, viral shedding sort of stuff. But, you know, nobody cares about that. What they care about is, are you getting infectious or can you transmit the virus to somebody else? That's going to happen on days four, five, and six after infection. That's when the peak viral replication is highest. Um, and all the tests, the antigen tests and the PCRs all perform pretty well uh, to detect that peak. If you want to look three weeks later and see, you know, some fancier stuff, antigen tests aren't that great. But to look at that peak, they're pretty good. And the other thing that goes on is the whole idea of pooling tests. So you can take 10 people's tests, pool them together, run one specimen. If it's negative, they're all negative. If it's positive, then you have to disentangle it, right? So that's also getting a lot of um, a lot of currency uh, in terms of uh, kind of mass testing, like on college campuses and stuff. Uh, I think it's okay. Um, it, it doesn't bother me. If you get into say maybe more than twenty percent of the people positive, it's no longer efficient. Uh, it's no longer an efficient way to do it. But for rare places like in California, where the infection is pretty rare, it's not a bad way to do it. Okay, next up is Pamela Humphrey. I'm really curious about um, the residual impact of all of these lockdowns and this virus on other kinds of medical conditions. You know, suicide is up yeah. at an extraordinary rate. You've got undiagnosed uh, medical conditions where people are, you know, missing cancer, heart 
issues, et cetera. You know, to what extent and at what point do those statistics, which are rising domestic abuse, child abuse, uh, at what point do those statistics um, have to be taken into consideration as we make our decisions going forward? That's the first question. The other is, as I understand, I hate to say it because everybody gets so excited about it, but the hydroxychlorine zinc uh, protocol that some people and some doctors have said have been quite effective. Um, what is your view on that? Are we condemning a possible uh, a possible uh, alternative for some people, if you know, doctor to patient uh, kind of decision, or are we just condemning it because it doesn't fit some sort of narrative? Uh, well, okay, so. To start with, I, I think you need to look at, you know, so yes, we take all those things into consideration. Um, you may not know it's sexually transmitted diseases are way down. Uh, and I think that's probably because bars are closed. Um, so there are some good sides to this. I have a daughter who told me that if, if couples have been sheltered together without children, you'll see a bunch of births nine months from now. But if they got sheltered with one child, they'll never have another child again. Um, so, you know, there is that kind of, there are those sorts of considerations. Uh, I can tell you influenza season in the Southern hemisphere has been almost non-existent because of sheltering in place and, and masks and social distancing. So there's some good sides. People talk, talk, talk a lot about suicide. Um, I've looked at the suicide data for the United States in terms of successful suicides. Those are not higher. There may be more suicide attempts, but those tend to get reported later. And it takes a while. Um, there was a report yesterday about drug overdose deaths being up. Uh, I haven't been able to disentangle that yet. So, um, so the answer is yes, we take all those things into account for the people who make these decisions, take those things into account. Um, but it's not, um, but you know, you have to really kind of look at the, uh, look at the data because uh, there's a lot of, as you know, there's a lot of hyperbole. I'm using a polite term. Uh, that surrounds uh, that surrounds this, and then the, the whole idea about hydroxychloroquine. Um, you know, there are there is a school of thought that 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 it may actually have some modest benefit, uh, but it uh, has not proven it not been proven in clinical trials. Um, this is why we you know, and so that's the bottom line. So there's been a recommendation not to uh, not to grant it licensure for that indication, just like we grant uh, licensure for all sorts of other drugs. Now, if you want to get it, your doctor can write a prescription for you and you can get it. The crime of hydroxychloroquine, crime, and I'll use the word crime here, is that it's a recognized, well-studied, clearly indicated treatment for a number of diseases, uh, like uh, things like, um, like lupus, uh, renal, uh, renal failure with lupus. People could not get it, and they started to die of their underlying disease, for which this was 100% successful therapeutic because it got diverted off to give to everybody for, uh, for uh, who are concerned about COVID. You know, that's the sort of stuff that, you know, that's one of the kind of balancing acts that has to, uh, that has to go on. Um, so your doctor can write it. I'm happy if, but just to make sure it's only one person. So it's not, the supply is not diverted from people who really need it and really use it for, for drugs for which it's clearly, indi for, indi for diseases for which it's clearly indicated. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Eve Benton is next up. Eve? Hi, yes. Thank you so much, Doctor, for doing this. Um, we've 
were presented with a theory a couple of weeks ago, and then he was on Farid last Sunday too. Um, a doctor from Harvard who thinks that if we did billions of instant tests yeah. at home every day, yeah. um, that it would weed out the sick ones and we could eventually, within a month or so, open up the businesses. Yeah. People, every who wasn't sick would come out. What do you think of that theory and could it ever be done? And would it be a good thing until we get a vaccine? Yeah, I mean, I think it would take forever to get it in play, into place. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the theory. Uh, and it's, um, you know, and we're actually pursuing it in places like we do it with, with in big healthcare facilities where we test healthcare workers all the time. Um, uh, but, you know, at a societal level to test everybody, you know, twice a week, which is three, every three days, that would mean that you would need, you know, every, you need every, uh, every 10 days, you'd need a billion uh, tests run. Right. So it's it's the you know, the logistics of it are, are overwhelming. And I, I think it's fine for a thought exercise. And I think in certain instances, it makes sense, uh, like on college campuses. Uh, but as I think is a practical this is Michael Mean, I assume I think as a practical uh, uh, yes, point, yes. It's, it's it's a little it's a little impractical. And I think vaccine will be here a lot faster than that, that capacity. Thank you. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's just sort of the practicality is impractical. We'll get the impractical. All right. Next up is John Rothman. Yeah. Hi. Thank you. Um, given the model that you've been presenting, where immunity is evanescent and short-lived, and there's no change in the virulence, um, what are your thoughts regarding some of the matters, matters that have been brought up here? in terms of uh, quarantining and, and sheltering in place, the social costs, the economic costs, the morbidity and the mortality associated with the response to the disease rather than the disease itself. If we're not gonna be immune and there's no change in the virulence, where in your opinion do we go from here? In my opinion, we hold on for a vaccine, which should be available in about three months. Um, you know, I mean, the, the early models which were not incorrect from Imperial College, suggested in the Bay Area there'd be 44,000 deaths from, from COVID-19. So far there have been, I don't know, I don't remember, it's San Francisco, it's 73. Um, in, in the 1918 influenza epidemic, there were 20, it's like 2,600, 2,700 deaths in San Francisco. So far there's 73 of this. So that's the, that's what we're, that's the benefit. That's what we're buying. Uh, now we could um, we could talk about you know what are the other costs? Um, uh, like uh, Ms. Humphrey uh, pointed out, you know, is there a cost in suicide? Is there a cost in other diseases? Yeah, of course there is, um, especially with domestic uh, domestic violence. That that's a real cost. But, uh, but on the uh, but on the other hand, you know, we're trying to balance off off death, and the reason. You know, I mean, if this were, if there were no vaccine, if we had no vaccine technology, if this was an impossible vaccine to make, you know, then yeah, then you then you go down the the route of Sweden, where you try and shelter the you know people over a certain age in in nursing homes and hope to hell that it doesn't that the virus doesn't get into it, uh, and try and protect your economy, uh, but that didn't work very well for them. So it's not a, um, I, I think, you know. Honestly, we're talking about it's September now, 
we're talking about vaccines in December and January. At least that's what NIH is talking about. Yeah, and, and I understand we're moving them pretty quickly, but but it seems to me there's an open question that nobody's addressed. If your immunity is temporary once you have the disease and, and recover, wouldn't your immunity also logically be temporary to an artificial inducement like a vaccine? Yeah, that's a different question. The answer is not not necessarily. And I'll come back to the fishermen on the boat uh, who had real neutralizing antibodies in high titer. The problem is, is you want to have, have antibody to a very specific part of the virus. Mm-hmm. And people don't necessarily generate, the, uh, generate that themselves. Uh, so if we can get that, that's going to be protective. Um, and now, is it going to be protective for more than a couple of years? I don't know. I'll, we'll have to see. But it's going to be a lot better than naturally acquired immunity. Thank you. It's engi- that's what it's engineered to be. Our final question, I think, given the timing, is uh, from David Mack. Thank you very much for doing this. This has been really informative. Sure. Um, I live in the Northeast, um, in Massachusetts and New York, and um, have been happy to see the region, um, you know, respect the virus um, and 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 take it seriously in terms of masks and distancing and, and whatnot, and that's showing up in the results. Um, I had a question though, as we move into um, the colder months, um, given how low the rate of infection is now, what should we think um, the rate will go to when we head into winter? And separately or um, inclusive, um, do you believe that some of the success in the region has been due to some of the travel restrictions on inbound uh, travel and um, how sustainable is that? And why haven't other regions, uh, um, you know, uh, adopted certain similar uh, policies. Hawaii certainly has. Um, you need to go into quarantine for two weeks in the, a hotel of the governor's choosing uh, if you want to go to Hawaii. Um, so I, I mean, I, I don't. You know, the, the the concern with the with the fall is not so much the cold weather and people being indoors, although that's obviously a concern. Uh, it's about schools, and it's not about elementary schools. It's about middle schools and high schools and colleges and how you can keep those kids from getting uh, infected and bringing it home and spreading it. Um, so that's the real concern as we as we head into the uh, winter months. One thing nobody asked me about, but since you brought up winter months and indoor crowding, I'll bring up influenza um, immunization, influenza vaccine, which is really important this year. Um, and the reason is, uh, is that if there's a bad influenza year, which we don't really think it's gonna be, but if it were, you don't want to be competing, having people competing for ICU beds with COVID patients if there's a big uh, third wave. So I would encourage all of you to get your immunization, uh, influenza immunizations. And I realize I didn't quite address your question, uh, David, but I, I'll say, you know, being indoor, indoors is a huge risk factor for respiratory viruses, period. So um, in, in 1918, the New York City schools uh, were outside the whole winter. And I have a picture of these kids with three pairs of mittens on trying to hold a pencil. Um, and so think long underwear. That's my advice. 
<laughs> on that advice, um, I want to thank you, Dr. Rutherford, for spending this time with us and uh, giving us such great information and bringing us up to date on what's going on with COVID-19. Really appreciate your time and expertise here. Um, and we will pass it on now to one of our No Labels co-founders and our resident guru, Bill Galston, to say some closing remarks. Well, first of all, uh, Dr. Rutherford, let me, let me echo what Martha just said. Uh, you've been very generous with, with your time. Uh, I'll also say that you have a terrific bedside manner. Uh, and that's not just of medical significance these days. I think it's of political significance because we need as many calming evidence-based voices as we can get into this conversation. And so I sure hope we hear a lot more of yours in the weeks and months to come. Uh, just very briefly, uh, No Labels has made a substantial commitment in this area. Uh, we're working with bipartisan groups of legislat legislators in both the House and the Senate. We're working with the administration and we're working with the consortium of, of governors who created a compact, a consortium headed up, I believe, by uh, Governor Hogan, Hogan of Maryland. Uh, we're a little bit more bullish on mass testing than you are, uh, but given how much time is passing, uh, your, your counsel about the vaccine is, you know, is probably gonna turn out to be correct. Uh, but we are trying to create a plan B or, or variants of plan B uh, in case the vaccine takes longer to become widely available uh, than NIH is now estimating. Uh, but at any rate, this has been extraordinarily valuable uh, and I hope we can stay in touch. Thanks again. Dr. Rutherford explains that there are a lot of misconceptions about how COVID-19 spreads. For example, it isn't necessarily safe to be outside if people aren't still social distancing, wearing masks and avoiding large groups. He also explains that America is a long way from herd immunity which would require 60 to 70% of the public to either contract or be vaccinated against the virus, which means we'll need to continue to be vigilant for many months to come. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. Thanks for listening.